welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. You have joined us for episode two of our episode by episode analysis of Adam Curtis's new series, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Episode two is called Shooting and Fucking Are the Same Thing. And on this podcast, I was joined by Andrea, Frankie and Oscar Frankie, but Ross could not join as you will hear. We spoke more about the stories Adam Curtis tells in this episode and we spoke about the parts of the Black Panther's history that Curtis doesn't talk about. And Andrea mentions a book at that point, she can't remember the title, it's by Akuga and Majulu and it's called Community Development as Micropolitics. Uh, I'll put a link to the, in the show notes to that as well. I enjoyed recording this with Andrea. This is the point where I realised perhaps we should have just done one podcast about the whole series instead of doing a podcast per episode, not because the podcast itself isn't interesting, but possibly because it sounds like we're moaning about Adam Curtis, which we we really aren't. I really enjoy Curtis's films. It's more about getting into it, about the details of the histories that he offers up. If you do want to listen to a podcast that deals with the whole of the Adam Curtis series in one episode, I can't imagine why you'd want to just limit it to one episode, but there you go. Then you could listen to Ralph Pritchard, friend of the podcast. He was the last person I interviewed. Uh, Him and his friend Owen do a podcast called MoobTube, as in Moobie, M-U-U-B-Tube. And they did a good episode about Curtis series on their podcast. So listen to that maybe if you're interested. I also mentioned an Errol Morris and Adam Curtis interview uh, that was recommended to me by Dan at Kingsgate. So I'll put a link up for that as well. We start off this conversation talking about Oscar's idea of post-diction, which perhaps we introduced last week, but we get into the details here. Hope you enjoy the conversation and I'll see you at the end. So we're here for episode two of Adam Curtis. This time I wrote the episode title down. So the series is Can't Get You Out of My Head and the episode title is Shooting and Fucking Are the Same Thing. See, didn't even have to Google it. And we were going to start, if you're okay, Oscar. Oh, we should say we've already had one casualty. Ross Jardine has fallen by the wayside. He's decided that having a small child and a new job is more important than recording a weekly podcast about a BBC television programme. <laughs> so there you go. But I have got Andrea and Oscar Frankie here to help me decipher the Curtis magic or whatever. But one thing that was raised last week but that didn't go in the podcast was that, Oscar, you, you, had a, uh, you kind of coined a word for what uh, Adam Curtis does. Could you say the word for us? Oh, yeah, uh, post-diction post-diction and do you could you give a brief gloss of what that means um it's like the opposite of a prediction he has a point he wants to make and then he looks for evidence and uh so in the end it'll all lead towards his point Mm. yeah that's that's post-diction it's interesting it's a nice idea because it's a bit like a conspiracy but it's not quite a conspiracy yeah. And it's a bit like, it could sound a bit like science. We were talking about this the other day. It could sound a bit like science, like you have your theory or your hypothesis and then you test it. But it kind of misses out different elements of those. What do you think about it, Andrea? What do you think about post-diction? Well, I think, um, yeah, I, think, I mean, the difference of science is that in, in, in science you would have an hypothesis and then you would look into the past and test it. So in a sense, you're kind of excited trying to find the things that contradict your hypothesis or make it yeah. more complicated. 
And then at the same time, you usually set those parameters. So you also try to predict the future. So you kind of like, you, you use the past to test that hypothesis and then you kind of construct an experiment that would allow you to kind of test it um, as a predictive thing. And ah, I think yeah. what Oscar um, pointed out with the, with the post-diction that is interesting is that there's no, it's just confirmation, right? It's like, it's, it's just... It's just looking for ways to kind of like justify that what it's saying is truth. Because you also said that it was, Oscar, you also said it was confirmation bias that Curtis was showing oh, yeah. in the last one. Do you still think that about this episode? Um, possibly. Uh, this episode, in my mind, made a bit less sense than the last one. Mm. It might be my attention span going or... <laughs> It might just be slightly more setting up and slightly less knocking down. Mm, yeah. What I thought was weird about this episode, so this is the second episode, but yet he still wasn't done introducing people. He introduced more characters, so you just have quite a lot of new people in the second episode, and some of their stories play out, but some of the, you know, from the first episode play out, and then some of them finish very quickly. For example, the first person he brings in is Edgar Mittelholzer, who's a novelist who lived in Britain but was from British Guyana. And he wrote about violence and racism uh, in the empire. But then he's quickly kind of dispatched or he dispatches himself. And then we don't hear from him again until Michael DeFratis, uh, a.k.a. Michael X, disappears into the Guyanan forest. And Curtis says this was exactly the same Guyanan forest that Edgar Mittelholzer had written about as though there was a kind of a grand reveal taking place. But of course, he was the person who <laughs> introduced Edgar Mittelholzer to the whole thing, and he doesn't have any other place in the whole story. So I've, I felt that that really reminded me of what you were saying about confirmation bias, but how you can kind of set it up for yourself. Like he didn't even, he just put something in there and then later used it to confirm that there is connections between these things, even though he's the only person who's in charge of all this stuff. But I think that, that goes back to, because over the week, we, um, so Matt and I had these conversations on WhatsApp over the week about how maybe the post-diction thing was doing the same thing that I was doing last time, which is like trying to understand this through like a journalistic framework or through like a science knowledge-making framework. And then maybe this is just like, a, this is just because of the way Curtis frames his work when he talks about it. But the actual work is much closer to what an artistic process would be. And, and I think that's something that at least both of us do a lot, which is, you know, you get interested in something. A lot of the time you, you have this intuition about a certain feeling or a certain tone or a certain type of, you know, relation that excites you. And you just go into the past and try, or like the present, and try to find things that you feel are similar because you get something from gathering all. So it's, it's almost like a collecting of, that you do through your, through your instincts that gives you something when you put it together and it feels like to me and maybe that's what Oscar was saying about this this part we were talking earlier today and I was like I don't remember almost anything from this episode because it's so loose and it's just like a series of things that you're feeling or encountering and maybe maybe those kind of like connections that come up with a hypothesis or a theory and defend it is something that I feel like maybe I'm at a certain level projecting on the work I don't know how you f both feel about that. Hey, the one thing I wanted to show you guys, uh, can you see my screen? Yes. So this, uh, for the listeners, this is a screenshot. I was writing about this the other day. It's actually, it's the opening 
quote from the start of the series from episode one. And it's a quote from David Graeber that says, the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something we make and could just as easily make differently. I was writing about how Curtis, used ti- Curtis uses titles because it's quite weird the way he does it and quite sporadic. But this, this title card struck me as really interesting because firstly, it's an academic quote and it's, you know, it's kind of attributed. So that's weird anyway, because generally he doesn't really attribute things or he just attributes them in, in his voiceover. And then secondly, it kind of tells you, it like summarizes the whole point of the film. But it's also so banal, right? And yeah. I know I'm not yeah, a yeah, Graeber yeah, yeah. fan, but that's like an Instagram thing that's, that an influencer posts to be like smart or something. It's just like, there's so many people that have said similar things to that yeah, and probably totally. a lot more interesting. And the fact that he chooses Graeber, who also just passed, He's, it's just, I don't know, the sentimentality is the thing that I just find so... I'm like, of course, of course, that's that. But last week, Andrea, you said, oh, I wonder whether he, and Adam Curtis is going to reflect on the way that he, you know, has the, the formal methods that he is using to associate ideas. And it did strike me that this is an interesting quote for that because if it's the artwork kind of talking to us that is a bit of self-awareness that's the only way in which this quote is interesting it's the only way in which this quote is not banal is if you think of an artwork itself talking to you so the ultimate the ultimate hidden truth of the artwork is that it is constructed and that it could have easily be constructed differently so that's just as a nod to your question last week oh i wonder whether he's going to be a bit more self-reflexive and start to reveal the constructed nature of it i did think oh maybe there's something there i'm not sure again i'm not sure if he noticed (laughs) that's double reading i just thought it was an interesting thing to share in in regards to that kind of effective tone that he's building up because it starts right at the start this kind of layering of like it being a conspiratorial style of filmmaking but also being about the notion of theorizing and the notion of conspiracy theories at the moment he's establishing connections but he's not necessarily establishing causality and that's what makes me think that it's more a lack of an art process of like you know associating things that produce similar affects or things like that then but i don't but but i don't know i feel like Similar to what you're saying about the title, I'm always like on the fence and how much of this is just projected. And sometimes I'm in a better mood and sometimes I'm in a worse mood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought, I think that part of the reason is when I put up the last podcast, a friend of mine, Tomohara, was tweeting back and, and he said the way he, he kind of described it was that Curtis just says everything. He basically uses the plainest, most descriptive language. He says things like these four revolutionaries all failed and they all failed in exactly the same way. And you just think to yourself, if you're watching it with any kind of criticality, you just think they're not really related in their aims. So therefore they can't have failed in the same way. And also what you've showed us doesn't really add up to them failing in the same way. But I suppose just it's easier to just say it is or something like I'm not quite sure of his intention, but that is just the way he writes things. You know what we should do? We should talk about the Black Panthers because you said that you and Oscar had started a conversation earlier. So the Black Panthers are kind of introduced as a group in this episode, but he he particularly introduces Afina Shakur. So do you guys want to talk about the Black Panthers because you you, you apparently you started a conversation earlier, but you were going to save it for the podcast? I think the thing we both were noticed about the Black Panthers, which kind of develops for from the conversation we had last week, was that there's not a, there's not any. There doesn't seem to be any thinking that he's working with the archive of the BBC, which means that there's a specific filter 
to the images and the kind of the stories he's telling. So he's presenting the Black Panthers in a way that is it's just like it's this kind of radical. And there are, and I'm saying they're not radical, but it's like this um, group of people that are focused on the revolution and then the kind of the violence of the police agents that are infiltrated. It kind of like fits that scheme. It just feels like, you know, the Black Panthers are just people that all the time are meeting together and just basically planning violent acts. Well, actually, the Black Panthers are like this, you know, amazing, incredibly sophisticated organization that, you know, organize breakfast uh, clubs for children that, you know, I just last week watched the documentary called The First Rainbow Pro- Project that is about the Black Panthers in Chicago and how they work with the white Appalachians and with the uh, Puerto Ricans. And then this is spread all over the U.S. So the Black Panthers were involved in groups with Native Americans, with Asian Americans. It was like a very, a group was super interested in multiracial um Solidarity and solidarity with the with the third world and with you know colonized countries. Um, it's incredibly sophisticated in its politics and it's, and has an an amazing relation with the history of civil rights as well. So it's not it's not like you know that that thing that uh, um, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't come one day and then you know this new movement completely oh, yeah. post that appears. There's like an, there's like an amazing story of how you know the leaders of the Black Panthers start in the civil rights movements and move on. But all of that is completely not part of the picture because because the BBC at the time is only interested in documenting the Black Panthers as a terrorist story and then a story of these terrorists that then become, you know, in court, become something else. And, and I think one of the things that was really interesting is that when it gets to the court beat, when they have the, the police that were infiltrated that were actually, you know, the police that uh, were convincing the Black Panthers to commit this, this act of violence, uh, and they take the stand, what Shakur does is, is ask, well, but didn't you thought, thought the work we're doing was great? Didn't you thought the breakfast clubs were great? Didn't you thought... And I was like, yeah, but we also have, like, Curtis has, has also failed to show us that because that's not part of the BBC archives. Yeah. Does, yeah, yeah, does yeah. that make sense? And, I, and, I, and, I, and it's, it's a bit the same of the, of the Kenyan story the week before. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was really, felt really sad that that, I, I think as far as I could tell, yeah, those bits of footage were just to illustrate racism in Britain and hadn't, there was no interest in exploring that story any further, as far as I could tell. I think that's the thing, is like when, you, when he works with those archives, he just like receives this, you know, the same racism that he's criticizing and the yeah. same kind of colonial perspectives and the same, you know, difference of power and authority, they just filter through this archive mm-hmm. and he never really examines what what is the material that he doesn't have to start with. Like he's looking back at these archives and he making he's making a history of the feelings of the British population in regards to this broadcast yeah, that yeah. dominated TV. That's the whole thing. It's not about history. Maybe maybe this is I wanted to say that last week I saw this film. It's a it's this mascara film film club and it was it's called Specialized Technique and it's by Onyeka Igwe, and if I'm pronouncing the name wrong, which probably I'm, I really apologize, but it's about these films made by William Sellers and the Colonial Film Unit, who, you know, had all these rules about like slow edits and no camera tricks and minimal camera movement and they go in kind of like film black dance for the colonial, as part of the colonial British project. And again, like they're, they're kind of like collected with this idea of like neutrality and participatory and, and this artist goes back to those films and she just like have this amazing interrogation and dialogue 
and just showing how actually unneutral those films are and how you know little voice and little agency the people that are being represented have and, and I watched that and, and it also like it really made me have a completely different relationship with the people that are on the archive images that mm-hmm. Curtis uses which I feel have absolutely no agency in his you know, in, in the way he uses them in the film. I mean, he's institutionalised, right? He's been there for a very long time. If you're a producer at the BBC, when you say the archive, you mean the BBC archive. I thought it was really interesting that there's one bit of footage in there that obviously needed accreditation because it's from a different archive. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. It was the, it's like a bit of a really nice kind of weird bit of footage of like a, a duckling walking around in a psych, in a kind of experiment in a laboratory and then it falls down a little hole it's from the center for the history of psychology moving image collection so suddenly we've got this citation as though suddenly academic rules apply to this and it's probably because they're like oh yeah it's totally fine to use this you can use it for free you just have to cite us and so he just has to do it whereas he doesn't do that with any of the other footage he uses from the bbc and you suddenly realize like yeah its relationship to script can be totally illustrative it can literally be the thing he's talking about right then and there or it can just be totally associative he's like a fish and the bbc archive is his water you know that stupid joke about like an old fish swims past a young fish and says how's the water today and the young fish goes on and he's like water what the hell's water for curtis that's the bbc archive it's just completely natural that that's the only footage they've got but it is weird i the the other reading i thought for the black panthers bit so the whole story that he tells is uh shakur becomes part of the black panthers the black panthers are a revolutionary party like you say they kind of he kind of misses out all of the other stuff that the black panthers did the police infiltrate their cell and instigate basically a huge act of bombing and then they get taken to court and Shakur, she defends herself and she questions the undercover police agents and she says, weren't you proud of all the things we did? Aren't you ashamed of what you've done to the community and this kind of thing? Anyway, the jury acquits all the defendants and it's a very exciting moment. That story then kind of ends for Curtis and he says, he's talking about these revolutionary groups and individuals and he says, they all failed. But of course, he's just illustrated that they kind of didn't fail and that if they did fail, they only failed in their revolutionary aims, which weren't their point. And also that if they did fail, it was only because they were infiltrated by undercover agents. It's like on all levels, his kind of attribution of failure to the Black Panthers doesn't quite fit even with the story that he has told. That's what I noticed as well. Like it didn't quite match up with what he had said, let alone with the fact that, yeah, of all the other stuff that the Black Panthers did. Well, then he does this quite cruel thing where he shows Eldridge Cleaver setting up a fashion company and Bobby Seale becoming a TV chef. And it's like, well, after the Black Panthers, like, you know, if you told the whole story, then fair enough, like use that footage and show us what happens when you're in a revolutionary group and the government basically cuts you off from the economy. And like the only route back into the economy, I'm assuming for those people was to rely on their celebrity that they'd gained through being in the Black Panthers. Now that's an interesting story in itself because it doesn't have enough time to tell it. So he just uses it to essentially set them up as figures of fun and figures of kind of not, not quite ridicule, but like to see that they have failed by becoming part of celebrity culture or something. But I think uh, I mean, there's, there's two things there. One is I, when I was watching, one of the things that I keep thinking about was about Akugo Medjulo's book, which is called Micropolitics of something. I'll, 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 keep, I'll send you the link. But it's like this amazing book that she, she wrote that is looking at the history of sort of a community, what she calls community work in the US and the UK over a period of time. So comparing it through like the post-war 
you know, the Reagan I Thatcher years and then the new labor and kind of the, I guess, Clinton government. Uh, and she's mapping this amazing thing, which is, you know, you, which is the thing that he's mapping in a sense. She's mapping how in the U.S. that sort of work is grassroots organized and it comes from the Black Panthers and the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And that means it's kind of political and it's, you know, it's always involved in the struggle. And in a sense, it's like producing a lot of the really interesting political change that we've actually seen in the past. You know, so much of the, the, the stuff that has changed for the better I guess, in, in the U.S. in the last 60 years have come from, you know, the LGBTQI movement and now the trans movement, the um, Black Lives Matter. All of those things are based in, in these organizations that were, were set by those groups and that were still in struggle. Because, again, like, Curtis' idea of revolution is a very white male-centric idea of revolution, that a revolution is something that happened and everything is solved, and it isn't. Like, it, they, all of these groups have come with amazing ways to struggle and support their communities and, and keep advancing things. And then she compares that with the UK, which after the post-war, immediately uh, labor set community work as something that is done for the people. And it's done from like a lovely, I think, leftist place full of heart, but it's actually horrible. And it, and kind of like, and it kind of builds up this idea that is super patronizing, that is quite dehumanizing of, you know, the, the, the welfare state that keeps being misread Mm. as something that you know needs to be done to help these people that are helpless or and i think that he illustrates that with you know the idea of those white kids um yeah trying to help these communities and uh and, and i'm interested in that because right? sorry when what? He, when, uh, the stu- he's he's talks about them as kind of students in notting hill or kind of yes. leftists in notting hill Liberals. which is which is which to me who are you know, involved in social practice and stuff that's the that's the heritage that I sort of have to fight against, in a sense, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, we're not used with, like, institutionally, none of the British institutions are, are can sort of conceive that you can support grassroots groups so that they can organize themselves. But it's, it's always like, you know, you have to go and I don't know, make them a little bit happier. Just, just go and make people a little bit happier. And then you get surveys that say they're a little bit happier. And, and then you've done your job or something. Yeah, and but, I, I think to, to just to... Push back a little bit on the revolution thing, but essentially I agree with you. Curtis isn't wrong about what revolution is and what it was thought to be. And in terms of, you know, the ideology of revolution, it is meant to like turn the world over and make it anew. But if you were going to do a critical reading of revolution, which is essentially what he's saying he's offering, what you probably would do is show how a lot of these revolutionary groups underneath underneath their claims of you know the grander claims they're making they're also doing a lot of grassroots stuff as you're talking about in america but what he does is just he kind of sticks to this idea that there are revolutionary groups and then there are you know like there's other stuff and that they're completely separate but that's the that's the already received idea of history so he's not really challenging anything there at all also this idea that the idea that just because like white people started coming into Notting hill and um doing community stuff it said something like no politics happened in notting hill and it's like 1970 in notting hill and i don't know loads about notting hill but like i'm pretty certain it's it's been pretty politically active since the 50s like and it hasn't stopped being politically active just because michael defratus went to jail for like 10 months and it just seems such a needless overstatement like because he could still illustrate his point about yeah like this kind of community work or kind of white liberals and how it opposed black power like that could still be illustrated and it 
I just it's just the style that's getting to me. <laughs> you know, you have the Black Panthers here and you have lots of like super interesting black groups in the UK and Notting Hill is like a center place, you know, it has the carnival, so Claudia Jones you know, established the carnival there for reasons and When was the car do you know when the carnival was established? Sixty six. So so this is like peak activism. Yeah, but what exactly. happens is uh, that what happens is he doesn't have the images of that because the BBC yeah. is not covering yeah, yeah, the amazing yeah. grassroots that black communities do in, in Notting Hill or in London in general, right? We have so little images of, and those are like, again, are the, the images that were produced in the communities. That's the one thing I was going to say is that, although I, I'm almost certain you're correct about that, I also think it just... He likes this idea that revolution failed and that was the end of one era and then the new era was about individualism and that's the start of another era. And to make that really neat, he has to say things like black power failed when in fact, of course, it kind of, yeah, it just did lots of different things and it wasn't all in the purpose of kind of revolutionary activity. And that's what's kind of galling is that... I don't know, but like I'd assume if you really wanted to find it, you could find some BBC footage. Or if you really wanted to tell the story of, I don't know, say the Notting Hill Carnival was really important to him and the BBC didn't have the footage, he would have the means to get archive footage from elsewhere. I'm sure people would be happy to offer it up to him. But I think he's, like you say, he's kind of so tied to the BBC that he's just thinking, oh, well, if it's not on the BBC, then there's probably not some other great resource that I can find that has it. And I think the other thing that I know about the whole thing is that then to use Tupac Shakur as an example of his mom failed this is like my mother's side i'm like how could you you know use his career as an example of her mother's fail as a revolutionary or something he's like well oh, you, like know, you were this mother. big revolutionary <laughs> and now look what you created and first of all i don't really know that much about the but um i just think in terms of like the politics of you know the life of these amazing incredible women like is that what you is that what a revolutionary woman's role is? It's just like give birth to a proper revolutionary man. That's our only role. Yeah, I didn't even think in of the that. Well, it's not the world. I mean, Oscar, that... you, know, you better succeed as like a revolutionary. Otherwise, my whole life has no meaning. <laughs> <laughs> and she names the Shakur after the Pakamaru, which is a Peruvian revolutionary. Oh, no so way. I didn't know that. I'm even more offended about about. She's pretty fucking cool, man. In that footage of her as a teenager, you're like, wow, you are so cool. (laughs) She's so awesome. Yeah, she's pretty good. I should tell you what, you know, after last week, you said you got really kind of really taken out of everything by the musical montages. I think this week that happened to me as well. I I took more pleasure in those bits, maybe just because you'd mentioned them. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is like a real part of it. And I should not just always be looking for information in these films and trying to assess whether that information is kind of meaningful, but rather just to kind of enjoy the montages. And there were real montages. It wasn't just like one bit of footage and some music. It was like, yeah, like collections of edited footage to music. I really like that. I have to say, Oscar and I, I don't know Oscar, but I I just, there's this side of pleasure. Like I just enjoy watching the Chinese ballet so much. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing, amazing. I've never seen that and I really loved it. Yeah, I haven't seen any footage of that stuff before. The kind of Chinese opera that seems to involve, yeah, ballet and dancing. I mean, he he mentions it and it's a part of the story, but he doesn't dwell on it. Zhang Xing torturing her old uh, rival in in the film world, Li Lili, or Lily Lee, I can't remember which way around it is. But in the, I, when I was doing little bits of reading last week, like that's that's a big deal. Like she took their family in and then um, tortured her and all of her family and then her husband killed himself and she was left kind of alive but the only real remaining member of her family she wasn't allowed to 
work or do anything for the rest of her life. And after she died, I think they kind of bestowed an honor upon her and stuff. But it's like a it's like a really big part of that story, especially considering he's so interested in her, how she's an individual and she used the power of the masses to you know, commit her individual desires. But he kind of moves on fairly quickly. But again, maybe it's because there's not any interesting footage, so there's nothing to show. Especially after, um, in the first episode, it's it's almost like quite a big thing. Like, he preludes that, he talks about Lily. So you would think that it would also be a big thing in the second episode. Yeah, that's a good point. The first episode, that's kind of how he sets... Jiang Xing up, isn't it, by using this um, rivalry with Li Lily. But again, maybe uh, that makes me think of your word post-diction, because maybe if you come up with the conclusions first, then when you get, you know, when you make that kind of those ideas meet up, it's not quite as satisfying as when you work with the material you've got and see what happens. Maybe that's a kind of inevitability. Also, I've been thinking about this a lot, about ways of kind of having authority and having power. Andrea, we were talking last week about the Nexium documentary, The Vow, that we both watched. And I've been doing some writing about Nexium. And what I noticed with Nexium is that they change very small units of meaning. So they, they have their own handshake. And then they also have their own system of emotions and they kind of change the meaning of emotions. So joy means something slightly different. And then they also change the meaning of words. So they change the meaning of victim and um, responsibility and things like that. And they do this almost as a way to indoctrinate people, but also to check that people are submitting to their indoctrination. And obviously Adam Curtis isn't trying to run a cult. I'm not suggesting that at all, but like it struck me, but right at the end, he's he's re- reusing this phrase dream world over and over again. Did you notice that he's using dream world to describe, he's kind of what in, in lots of theory, I think would just be called ideology, but he's using it instead of saying, talking about the ideology of the kind of individualists ideology that's affected by, you know, psychological theories in the late 20th century. He says the dream world and you control the dream world and keep everyone happy while racism carries on outside. But that to me, like dream world is just a phrase that he's come up with. And though I'm I'm fine with it, I'm also just certain that other people would have already had ways of describing that, that he has dismissed or decided that are too complex for people. But that means that people, if they're interested in this stuff, they just can't follow it up. Do you know what I mean? If you Google dream world, it's not going to come up. Does that make sense? Like this idea where he's kind of slightly changing the terminology to make it simpler and clearer. But by doing so, he's rendering it kind of useless in terms of wider reading or research or like, I don't know, knowledge for people. But I think he does He does have this kind of like dismissal of the expertise, right? Like dream world, like the act of saying dream world to me is so like a, like a queer non, you know, flat earther. Yeah. Sort of like, again, coming up with this. It's just like this idea that he and we, because we watch his documentaries, we are the people that know the real world. Like yeah. they took the red pill or whatever. Well, other people, and, and the fact that it's a specific word is because it's, he's a specific unveiling of the real world. Like it's not about it's not about like creating a concept so that you know we together can understand something better. Mm. It's kind of like an ownership of a process of unveilment, which is similar to Nexium in the sense, and goes back to this idea of. Well, what it means is that if you're both Adam Curtis fans and you say Dream World, the other person knows what you mean. But if you're not an Adam Curtis fan, they don't know what you mean, and you just they just say what's. What's Dream World got to do with 
20th century politics and to and explain it. And then you look it, at them and you're like, oh, it's because you're still living in the dream no, world. No, you're still living <laughs> in the dream world by not watching Curtis. But I really did. Um, yeah, I did, I did enjoy it. I, I thought it was... I thought it was more set up, which again, I was really surprised at. I really thought there would be more association, more stuff, but it just felt like there was more set up. Oh, I did do one thing. I went and read an interview. Someone suggested an interview. Oh, is that the Errol Morris one? Yeah. Sorry, you posted on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't yeah. read it. It's, it's kind of cool. It's like a nice interview and it's just after The Power of Nightmares came out, which was the early 2000s when the Iraq war was on. He says, the person I love best in the world is Max... Weber, the sociologist from the late 19th century, who I've never read, actually. Have you read any Max Weber? Just a little bit. But it's funny because the other person that I'm friends with, which is a total libertarian, also adores Max Weber. So it makes total sense to me. Okay. Well, I mean, he's one of those people I've always thought, oh, he seems quite interesting, but I've never never actually sat down and read. And then finally, this is, this is interesting. Maybe we can end on discussing this. So Adam Curtis says, people criticise my film by saying things like, why aren't you balanced? Why aren't you putting in the other views? And my response was, what if the other view is wrong? And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, no one says that about anything. No one ever says, why didn't you put in the other view? And I was thinking, where's he got that from? Like, that's no one's critique of his films is like, oh, why didn't you put in the views of like the neoliberal people who went to war in Iraq? Like, No one cares about that. If you're watching like a documentary about why the war in Iraq's wrong. But what people are interested in is accuracy, if you're talking about journalism at least. And then I realised where he's got it, is it's the BBC he's got that, because that's what the BBC did, right? They were accused of inaccuracy and they responded with balance by being like, oh, okay, so instead of having like one expert on, we'll have an expert and an idiot on. Or instead of having one idiot on, we'll have two idiots on and they can just be in opposition and that's balance. So, so in terms of our BBC thing, maybe that's it, that's where he's got, this idea that, I don't know, like he's doing a particular truth-focused form of journalism that isn't about balance, but he's invented that, or that's the straw dog of the BBC. Well, I don't think he's invented that, but I think the beauty of it, which I I just read tiny bits of it, but we're ho- let's hope that Ross joins next Friday, is that um, we had this whole discussion about fact-checking, and I was trying during the week to figure out um, you know, whether what is the fact-checking, if, if there is a fact-checking process, or, you know, um, when what what uh, is it because that's something I'm quite fascinated the diff- yeah. you know fact checking something sociology is different from fact checking something for the New York Times or whatever and then Ross just found this like insane amount of documents and policies uh, about the BBC and it wasn't about fact checking at all right it was it was a kind of like a political thing that goes a lot more about um, you balance. know balance yeah, and, yeah. and their charter and, isn't it he found all this stuff in their charter which I can't remember if it ever actually alluded to fact-checking, but it's about, it mentions accuracy and stuff like that, but it doesn't ever lay out the kind of technical, yeah, I think that's what, like you say, that's what's interesting. It's like, okay, so it wants things to be, I can't remember the phrase, but, you know, it wants things to be accurate, but it never actually says what it means by accuracy and how it particularly achieves accuracy or how it tests things for accuracy if they're found not to be accurate by viewers but it would be interesting to to hear like what the particular fact checking process is not just for Curtis but for you know for BBC documentaries in general they will have a process but is it centralised or is there different departments or is it you just get it all signed off you get an external fact checker or whatever it has these amazing things like why do you you know why would you uh, need to be referred to the thorough policy well if the nature of the content uh, makes it 
would, would make it considered controversial. So if it's mm. not controversial, then you don't have to go through this process. Like there's all this amazing stuff in the policy that, um, again, like Ross is so good at reading reading these things but um yeah that's interesting you just, you just send us like so if so you say something stuff. that's untrue but it's completely banal well i suppose it means that you can like repeat stuff that the government say for example <laughs> and like no you can't be criticized for it you can like repeat lies that are kind of official lies or that are like standard you know like stuff about the nhs or something you can say things like oh you know captain tom raised nine million pounds for the nhs when, of course, the NHS isn't a charity and therefore cannot have money raised for it by individuals. Like, you can repeat that, and even if people, lots of people complain, it's like, oh, it's just a platitude, so we don't have to be accurate with it. So the, the, I think that the, what they say is, this is the guidelines. Uh, the BBC is committed to achieving due accuracy in all its output. This commitment is fundamental to our reputation and the trust of our audiences. The term due means that the accuracy must be adequate and appropriate to the output, taking into account taking account of the subject and nature of the content, the likely audience expectation, which probably is none from yeah, other Curtis films, yeah, yeah. and any sign posted that might influence that expectation. The due accuracy required of, for example, drama, entertainment, and comedy would not usually be the same as for most factual content, mm. which is a discussion that we had before, like if he's like seen inside as entertainment or um, journalism. The requirements might even vary within a gen genre, so due accuracy required of factual content might differ depending on whether it is, for example, factual entertainment, historical documentary, or current affair of, or news. So even the fact that it's historical documentary would, would mean that the fact-checking is quite different from, or like the accurate definition of accuracy is quite different from current affairs mm. or news. But yeah, maybe next week we can have like a whole discussion with Ross around those kind of ideas, like how, how those things get said in the policy of the BBC and how the, yeah. those ideas of like accuracy and fact-checking are framed the production of this we should also maybe maybe we should just email the bbc and just ask if they can tell us about that fact checking yeah i feel like as the person who doesn't have a child yeah, <laughs> a PhD, that. that's your job Matt. <laughs> okay cool oscar have you got any final thoughts to add to our discussion of episode two no sweet all right we'll just keep coming up with your new words because they're quite good i like them you could do that you could contribute a new word every week that I'd really like that that'd be really cool but post-diction was a high point so I don't know if you're going to match that again we'll see we'll see alright guys let's call it a day because that was fun and that's a good amount yes. of time thank you for listening to the Bad Vibes podcast thanks to Andrea and Oscar for their time and we'll be back next week we're going to try and keep this weekly so that it doesn't drag on for too long the old monathon continues and hopefully Ross will be back with us and we'll get some bloody answers from the BBC about their fact-checking process. All right, thanks very much. Bye. <laughs>